I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here at Village. We're going to get going here. Hello, thank you. You know what, I love that we have a hard time stopping conversations and getting back together. That's, I think, a mark of a healthy church and a church that loves each other. Now I get to scare you a little bit. In two weeks, we will be doing Living Nativity. Yeah, yeah, so that's, it's coming. We've been working on plans where everything is, is in order and going. If you have not signed up yet, today is your last opportunity, unless you want to be a townsperson later, but please sign up today. There's going to be a table in the courtyard today. Stop by. If you're not sure if you signed up, for instance, I sent out emails to everyone that was signed up. If you did not get an email, you might want to go look at the list there and make sure you're signed up. Something might have happened with the online form or um, we had some situations where it didn't go through when people hit submit. But um, check and make sure. You'll be getting your, your parts in the next couple days, those that have speaking parts. But also today we would like to start fitting for costumes. For anyone that has a speaking part or is a townsperson that is just going to mill around town, um, after the education hour today, there's a note in your worship folder. Up in CE Building 5, the upper right room, they're going to be starting fitting and assigning costumes. Right after the education hour, stop by there today and um, they'll assign you a costume. That would be great. But this is a, it's an exciting thing. Most of you, many of you have signed up to help in some capacity. We're excited about that. And um, just excited to see what God does with this ministry every year. Um, every time people go through, they, hear, they see the gospel and they hear the gospel and a request to follow Jesus. And so this is a chance that we have to really share Jesus with a lost world. So join us. I'd love to see like 75% of our church doing this. And it's a great chance to um, participate together in the gospel. Today we're going to jump to Acts, or we're going to keep going in Acts, even as we begin Advent season. And we're in Acts chapter 4. And if you remember last week, we did Acts chapter 3, and, and Peter and John came into the temple, and as they came into the steps going up in the temple complex, there was the man that was lame from birth. Remember that? And in about 40 years, and we'll find that out in, in today's text, and they healed him, and they didn't have money for him, but they gave him something much more. They healed him, he could walk, and all evidences in last week's chapter and this week's chapter is he also came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ at the same time. What a gift, what an amazing thing. And, and after this happened, the guy's jumping and leaping and dancing and all kinds of crazy stuff. This guy that people had seen for years and years, this whole crowd follows Peter. Remember last week? They follow him into Solomon's portico and he preaches the gospel. And we know from one of the verses today that a thousand or more people, thousands, came to Christ because the Holy Spirit worked. Because Peter and John followed the Spirit's prompting and, and God did a work. People were amazed, people praised God, and people were saved because there was opportunity for the gospel. Up until this chapter today... The church, this early church, the seed of the church as it's starting to grow, had basically risen with no opposition. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had no idea what to do with this group because they thought they had taken care of this problem when they killed Jesus. They had no idea that it was only temporary. And three days later, he was not dead. And the church was born and the Holy Spirit had come. And so they, they had no clue what was happening and how it would change the world forever. 
And so up until now, as Peter and John, there are a couple cooks, cooks over there in the corner and they have no idea of what's going on. But now we're up to 5,000 people or more probably that have accepted Christ. Now we have a problem. Now we've gone from a couple of strange guys to a movement. And so now in chapter 4, we see the first time the church faces opposition. As the leaders say, oh, put, put on the brakes. We need to stop this. And so now we come to Acts chapter 4, seeing how a church responds to opposition. One of the um, members of my household has been quoted as saying, what the church needs is a good persecution. Think about that for a moment. And it's not wishing for persecution, but it's wishing that there would be some kind of refining fire that would, that would break off the people that are pretending to be Christians and energize the people that are walking with God that are looking to move forward with His work. I want to read an article from Christianity Today, and this ties into a church under opposition Opposition like we don't understand. This is from Christianity Today, speaking of where the church is growing the fastest in the world. You've heard us talk about this. Anyone remember, this is the test of the morning. Anyone remember what we've said? Where is the church growing the fastest in the world right now? Middle East. Iran specifically is one of the places, one of about five places that is in the top of the list. And the article says this, Christians in Iran face relentless persecution. Ranked ninth on Open Door's list of countries where it's most dangerous to be a Christian, open churches are forbidden and converting from Islam. The state religion is punishable by death for men and life imprisonment for women. Last year, more than 100 Christians were arrested or imprisoned and allegations of torture have emerged. And yet the church in Iran is thriving. In 2015, mission organization Operation World named Iran as having the fastest-growing evangelical population in the world, with an estimated annual growth of 19.6%. Think about that, 19.6%, almost 20% a year the church is growing. According to Mark Howard of Alam Ministries, an organization founded by Iranian church leaders with the purpose of expanding the church in Iran, More Iranians have become Christians in the last two decades than in the previous 13 centuries combined. Isn't that cool? Iran, who's on the top nine, in the top nine of persecution, where if you go to church, you can be imprisoned or killed. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Catch that? 500. That's a, that's, that's tiny. He says, today there are hundreds of thousands, some say more than a million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To go from 500 to a million believers in 30 years is amazing. 35 years. What the church needs might be a good persecution. Because it gets us to focus on the main things. And it gets us to walk out in faith on the things that matter. What was interesting is I was looking up some of the details of the, the, um, the Christianity Today story. I found one of the major news outlet in, in the last two years had picked up the same story. It's growing so fast that even secular news can't ignore it. I love that. And, and they, they were talking about just how the church is growing in Iran. Well, today in Acts chapter 4, we get just a seed of that, a nucleus of that, 
of what does it look like when the church is persecuted? What does it look like when there's opposition? And this is just the first opposition. Opposition rising, if you will, for the church. But we're going to see how the church responds is exactly how we should respond if there's opposition. Now, we, we don't experience opposition nearly uh, to the point of being imprisoned and killed yet for, for Christ. We experience opposition of a different sort. Maybe it's worried about what people will say on social media or worried about being misunderstood or whatever it is. It's not the same, but we can take some of the same lessons and apply it from the greater situation to our situation. Make sense? And so we want to look at if, if the early church was able to handle opposition in the way we see in Acts 4, and we'll see it in Acts 5, then how much more can we step out in faith for our Lord and Savior? Let's just stop and pray as we get into this text. Lord God, I pray that as we get into Acts 4 and then in the weeks to come, Acts 5, that you would challenge us to be a church on fire for you no matter the cost, no matter the consequences, Lord. Challenge us to know that we have the good news of a Savior who came and was born at Christmas time and then lived a perfect life and died to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again. Help us to to be in awe of that story and boldly proclaiming that to a world that needs to hear it. Lord, challenge us and step on our toes with this text today. In your name, amen. So we start Acts chapter 4, and we're, the way we're going to organize today is we're going to sort of do five movements of what's happening here. And think of all the court cases you've seen on TV and all those, because none of you have ever been in court, all those court cases you've seen on TV and all those things. And, and we'll just sort of follow this through of what is happening to Peter and John. Again, end of chapter 3, they're preaching, thousands of people there, people are coming to Christ. It's amazing. And then verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And so here we see it begin. The, The case begins. The opposition begins. It begins to rise. While they were speaking to the people in the middle of a message, some people didn't like it so much that they stopped the message. Wow, that must be a great message. But we see sort of movement number one, the arrest. The arrest. Opposition rises to the message and messengers of the gospel. Opposition rises to the message and messengers of the gospel. And there's a couple of things they're not happy about. In verses 1 through 3, we find out that they're not happy that they're teaching people about Jesus and His resurrection. And that He's offering resurrection from the dead to those who believe. And so the word there is annoyed, we see in verse 2. They are irritated. It is grating on them. And they can't let it continue. And so we see this group of the priests, those that are working in the temple, the captain of the temple, who probably, we think police chief, this probably was a priest as well, second in command from the high priest. So he was the, the one right under the high priest was in charge of keeping order in the temple. And he was over the temple police. So the priest came, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came, a group that we really didn't see in the Gospels. Um, we saw more of the Pharisees in the Gospels, right? 
Well, this is the Sadducees. And, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are two different groups that comprised most of the Sanhedrin, most of the, the religious leaders of the time, but they were very different groups, both in their religion and their politics. And so the Sadducees tended to be from a much higher class of people. And so um, they were... They were, they had the certain beliefs. They only held to the Torah in the Old Testament and the first five books of the Bible and the rest of the Old Testament they didn't hold to. Consequently, they had different beliefs like they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so that, that's why we see them leading the way here. They are so annoyed because the disciples are preaching what? Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he offers that to all who believe. And they're like, no, no, we don't see that in, in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's heresy. And so they are after them for this. Now, as, as we study history, it looks like the Sadducees were sort of concerned about religion, but they were far more concerned about politics because they were the elite. They were the, the wealthy. They were the ruling class. And so, yes, they were upset about this religious belief, but they were also upset that there were thousands of people listening to Peter and not them. And so we have to understand some of the dynamics. This group, by the way, this group is the group that came to Jesus. Remember they tried to, to attack him on the resurrection and they used leveret marriage where a brother has to, to marry his brother's wife if he passes away with no kids. And so they posed the, the issue. What if a brother's married and then he passes away with no kids and then his brother marries her and then he passes away with no kids and then his brother marries her. And after three or four, I'd start to look at what the, what the wife is doing, but that's, that's a different story. And they're like, okay, who's he married to in eternity? And that's where Jesus said, well, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no giving in marriage in, in heaven. But they, they believed there was no resurrection, so they were trying to trap Jesus. Didn't work then. And so now they're after Peter and John the church is carrying on the work of Jesus. So they were, they were religiously motivated. They were politically motivated. And they now, it's interesting, seem to be leading the opposition. So sort of the dad joke that I use for remembering the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. You're going to laugh about that later. But you'll remember the Sadducees and what they believed. Um, no resurrection. And that was the, the major turning point here. So as they were speaking, the priest, captain of the temple, Sadducees came upon him, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they're annoyed they were teaching the people. That's the power thing. Oh yeah, we don't like the resurrection either. So they're annoyed over that. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And we remember, when they came in and healed the lame man, they were already in the afternoon. All this happened, the preaching happened, they come in, it's evening, you can't get a court together after dusk, and so they had no time to do anything, which I think was was part of their plan. Let's throw them in jail overnight, let them cool off. Let's see what they really think about the gospel then. (laughs) Didn't work. And so we see the arrest, the opposition is rising to the message and the messengers of the gospel. Not happy what they're teaching. And then I, th- I think number four fits in this. They're not happy that many are coming to Christ. This comes back to the power. But many of those who had heard the word believed. So Peter and John are being carted away. And we get a statement of how many people are believing because of the message. What a testimony to their faithfulness to the message, even in the midst of persecution and opposition. 
And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So if you add women and children, you're looking possibly at close to 10,000 people here. People responded to the gospel. And so the leaders were arrested. Second movement then. They're arrested. And so the next day they're going to form a court. and They're going to have this hearing. And so movement number two is the hearing. The Holy Spirit turns opposition into an opportunity. And I love this because, again, we see some of the same things we talked about last week. People being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and obeying. God, God doing a work through that. People amazed and praising Him. Non-believers amazed at what's going on and then open to the gospel. We're going to see all of those elements again today. Those are going to repeat and repeat and repeat throughout Acts. Sometimes in different orders, but we're going to see that again today. So we come to the hearing. And the first part of this is the questioning, verses 5 through 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, that same group, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all were of the high priestly family. Now, a couple of of names there. Annas is the high priest, or it's probably more accurate to say was the high priest. He was removed from being high priest in about A.D. 15, so he's no longer high priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the actual high priest right now. John probably refers to another son named Jonathan of his who became high priest in 37. In fact, all five of Annas's sons became high priests at some point. They sort of had just sort of family rule on the, the, the priesthood of all of Israel. And so these were the heaviest hitters spiritually. These were the, the top of the top. And, and so their whole family and everyone that's in this upper strata of religious leaders was there who are supposed to be walking with God, who are supposed to be drawing people back to God. And they're there to accuse Peter and John. And so verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, and what they did is the the Sanhedrin, and this would be the assembly of a Sanhedrin, 70 plus 1 elders, 70 plus the high priest, and they would assemble them in a semicircle, and then whoever was the accused would sit in the middle of the semicircle. And so nothing like being put on the spot. And so they bring in Peter and John to the middle of the semicircle. They have all these elders and priests and the, the big wigs of religion all around them, accusing them. And we're going to find out they also had the lame man there with them, who's not lame anymore. And it's sort of obvious. He's standing there with them. And so that's the setting of what's happening. And we have all of these, these lawyers. You have the rulers, probably the priests. The elders, the lay leaders, the scribes are your religious lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then all these leaders. And so they question. They question what is going on. And they say, sorry, let me get the right page here. And in verse 7, And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And that's their question. The court case begins. By what authority did you do this? And then we get the answer. And this is all part of the hearing. And so Peter, in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, that phrase should give us chills. It's like something good's going to happen. Because it says Peter here is in tune with the Holy Spirit, obeying the Holy Spirit, and he's going to act by the Holy Spirit. So how is the Holy Spirit going to answer this? And the answer is that empowered by the Holy Spirit... Peter uses this questioning as an opportunity to point to Jesus and to the gospel. 
With Peter, everything he's looking for, how can this be an opportunity for the gospel? What an example to us. For everything we do, every situation we're in, we're looking for, how can, how can this point to Jesus? How can I use this to point people around me to Jesus, to show people the gospel? And that's what the Holy Spirit did through Peter here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. So he addresses them in a fairly polite address here. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. And he's going to go on to explain. So he starts by saying, he starts by reminding them, isn't this a good thing? This guy was lame before, now he's walking. We're on trial for doing something kind to somebody? And, and so the, the irony here, he's poking a little bit. The, the dagger is going in a little bit. Now what's interesting, all of this, what we're seeing, Peter filled by the Holy Spirit, answering opposition, is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Luke 12. And remember, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, episode 1, episode 2. And this is probably in Luke's mind as he's writing, because Luke 12, Jesus says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Jesus had promised that to the disciples. And now Peter, in Acts 4, is living it. He's living Jesus fulfilling that promise. It's a wonderful thing. And so he starts by reminding everyone that this is a good thing. Then in verse 10 is the twist. This is where he turns it. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the name of, by the authority of, and he points to the men that have been the thorn in their, their flesh, their, in their side, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he starts to, to go home with the message. Whom you crucified. So not only was a good thing done, it was done by Jesus, and you missed what he was trying to do. You killed him. You crucified him. And we see that in chapter 3 he had given the same message. This is our third sermon, and Peter keeps coming back to this because he's trying to let them know they participated in the death of the Messiah. Just as we did with our sin necessitated the death of the Messiah. And so this is that step of understanding the gospel that we have to say, yeah, my sin is what sent Jesus there. Every one of us has to say that. We have to take ownership of that. My sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. And so here he says the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is what healed him. He's standing right here. Obviously this is power. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. What did man do? Killed him. What did God do? Raised him from the dead. What a difference. By him, this man is standing before you well. I don't know if you're getting the sense of it, but how do you start to answer this if you're one of the ones judging him? No, he's not healed. Well, no, he's standing right there. It wasn't a good thing. Well, no, we, we all have to say that's a good thing. And, and Jesus, who, who reports are he was alive after we killed him, this is rocking their belief system at the very core, at the foundation. This by, his, by him, this man is standing before you well. Then he goes to a familiar metaphor that we've seen. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, 
which has become the cornerstone. And he's quoting Psalm 118.22. Jesus quoted it in Luke 20.17. And it's saying, basically, Jesus came. He's the cornerstone. You rejected Him. The nation of Israel rejected Him. And so now the church, which includes Gentiles and Jews, it includes those that believe in Him, will be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I have a picture here of a cornerstone, which we've, we've shown before. But this is the, the corner of a, a, a stone building. And you can see the corners were, were made at 90 degree angles because that was how you decided the direction of the walls was based on this cornerstone. The cornerstone also bore the weight of the building, the majority of the weight of the building in the corner. Lose this, the whole side starts to crumble. Jesus is saying, you kicked me to the side. You rejected me. But now God is using, Peter is saying this about Jesus, God is using Jesus to build his church as the strength, as the direction, as the foundation for his church. Jesus is the cornerstone for our church. Jesus is the cornerstone for every church. And we dare not forget that. And then verse 12, this is a short sermon. Peter's. Not this one. (laughs) Just honest. In verse 12, Peter wraps it up and says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As the man who can walk is standing behind them as the men testifying that he's alive are sitting in front of them. They can't deny those things. And the culminating point is there's salvation in no one else. No one else has done these things. No one else can do these things but the Messiah. And so there's salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. And what's interesting is that word for saved there is the same root word as as healed in verse 9. And Peter's using a play on words. You want to know who healed this man? Why he can walk? It's Jesus. Who healed him spiritually? It's Jesus. Who can heal you for your spiritual problems? Jesus. And only Jesus. And village, if there's someone here that, that... is still looking. I'm so glad you're here. Please keep looking into Jesus and His claims. We'd love to talk about it. But one of His claims, even in John 14, 6, is there is no other way to the Father. There is no other way to eternal life than through Him. Jesus isn't one of many. Jesus isn't like Google Maps that gives you ten different ways to get somewhere. Jesus is the way. Period. There is no way to salvation but through Him. And I can't say that clearly enough because I see so many people say, well, I'm going to try this sort of spiritual mysticism or I'm going to try this or I'm going to try this. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. And and that's just not me saying it. He claimed it in John 14, 6. Peter claimed it here. And if, if he's telling the truth, and if he was the Messiah, then we have to take all of his truth claims as true. We can't pick and choose. And if we deny this one, then we have to say the guy was a jerk and a manipulator and just power hungry. And history doesn't show that. The evidence doesn't show that. Either he's telling the truth or he's not. And if he is, this is the most important thing you will hear. And so come to him today. Believe in him today. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Because no 
when else is God incarnate? As we're, as we're looking forward to with the Advent. No one else lived a perfect life. No one else died on a cross as payment for our sin that we were supposed to pay. No one else. And so that's, that's Peter's answer. Empowered by the Spirit, Peter gives this short message. He uses the questioning as an opportunity and a powerful opportunity. So now he, he, he stops speaking. I picture him standing and then sitting down and silence in the room. Uh, a little bit of this is my imagination because it really looks like they're a bit speechless in the next section. And so the, the third phase of this is the deliberation. He sits down, silence in the room. What do we do? We can't deny the claims. What do we do with this fisherman? And so verse 13, the deliberation, the non-believing leaders saw God work through Peter and John and were astonished and they couldn't deny it. They had nothing to say. Maybe as Peter sat down, he dropped the mic. But verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the courage, that word can be translated courage, boldness, speaking out when you don't want to. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And so again, Peter listened to the Holy Spirit. God did a work. People are astonished. It's what happens when God steps in, when the Holy Spirit steps in and does a work. Now, now, there's all kinds of ways we can take some of these. We know that they were amazed at their boldness, both in the preaching and in the content of their answer. It's a spirit-empowered boldness with this courage and confidence. But what's interesting is they go on to say that they're uneducated men. They're not calling them idiots. Okay? The wording here is that they aren't trained in rhetoric and theology. They have no training. It's like someone that, that has never been to, to Bible college, seminary, or church classes on theology, somehow coming in and giving the best theology lesson you've ever heard. We'd be like, where did you get that? Online, YouTube. No, um, where, and so they're asking, where did they get this? These are men that haven't gotten to college for this. They haven't been trained in this kind of rhetoric. In, in Jewish law or in any of this. They haven't been trained how to speak in front of people. And, and this is not saying, by the way, that training's bad. Training is a, a powerful thing as it's coupled with the working of the Holy Spirit. Their training? Three years with Jesus. Three years every day with the best teacher that has ever walked the planet. I'll take that any day. And so... They don't know what to do with them. They were astonished. They were uneducated. And that training, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And it's not that they didn't know this, but they didn't understand the extent of the effect it had had on their lives. And now suddenly, they're having the same problems with these two guys that they had with Jesus. It's continuing what they thought they had wiped out, what they thought they had taken care of. Oh, that it's said for me, though, I can tell that that man has been with Jesus. Oh, that it is said of you. See, the more time we're in God's Word, the more time we're with Jesus in prayer, the more time we're in worship with Jesus, it will change us. It will change us in ways that people notice. 
And I, I pray that for every one of us it could be said, and they recognized that village had been with Jesus. And it's weird, and it's different, and it's strange, and the Holy Spirit is doing something through those 200 people. That's my prayer for us. And that's what happened with Peter and John. Why? Because of their courage. Because of their boldness and commitment to the gospel. In verse 14, it goes on, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. I love that. They were speechless. It made no sense to them. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they asked Peter and John and the the lame man who's now walking, they asked them to leave because they've got to figure out what to do. Um, When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Love to be a fly on the wall in that deliberation. And they're saying, what should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed with them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. People were watching. People know this guy is walking. People know the Holy Spirit did something or that God did something. What do we do? How do we shut them up, keep our power, while not denying that God did a miracle? And so they're in a catch-22, and I love it. Because God has used through His, His sovereign wisdom, He has used the situation to, to force the issue with these leaders. So they say it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. I don't know who came up with the idea in the council. Someone did. Someone's like, I know. Let's just tell them not to. <laughs> when you got nothing, you got nothing. <laughs> I mean, when, when people are bold for the gospel, how do you stop them? How do you, now it's going to escalate as we go through Acts and they're going to find new ways to stop them. But for the first incursion, let's just tell them not to. Let's see if that works. It actually is a, is a pretty reasonable thing to start with because then if you've told them not to, you now have a, a legal precedent and you can accuse them of more the next time they do it. And so it's sort of where they had to start. They had no choice. But there's nothing else they could do. And so movement number four, the verdict. In an attempt to stop the gospel, the apostles were prohibited from obeying Jesus by being witnesses. Let me read that again. The verdict is, in an attempt to stop the gospel, the apostles were prohibited from obeying Jesus by being witnesses. And so you're setting up here a dilemma where they are now being asked to do something, asked not to do something that Jesus specifically asked them to do, right? Matthew 28. You'll be my, uh, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Acts 1-8. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. You are to be my witnesses. You are to testify about me to the entire world. And so they were commanded by God to do this. And now they're told by man not to do this. And so we see in verse 18 the warning. They bring them back in, pull them in, say, you know, we've, we've thought long and hard about this. And we've come to a verdict. We've come to what needs to happen here. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That Jesus guy, stop talking about him. Don't say his name. Don't teach about him. 
Don't teach that resurrection stuff. Stop and we're good. I'm adding in some of my own conjecture of what's happening there. And this is again is all they could do. Tell them not to. We're going to see it again in chapter 5 where this sort of same conflict just escalated a bit. And so then we get the answer. And Peter and John answered them and and basically they say, "We, we will obey and say what we have seen and heard. We can do no other. We will obey Jesus and say what we have seen and heard. We can do no other. In verse 19, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is a clear act of defiance. And this isn't, this isn't sort of subtly doing this. This is a clear act of defiance where they say no. No, we are going to obey Jesus. We are going to do this. Again, with a pointed statement, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What's the implication there? He just told them they weren't speaking God's words. They weren't speaking on behalf of God. He basically just called them pagans. Couldn't have felt felt great for them. But it's a clear act of defiance. Interestingly enough, just as you look at history, Socrates also had a statement like this to his Athenian accusers who warned him to desist from his teaching. And he said, I shall obey God rather than you. And that had become sort of a a philosophical proverb of the time. And we're going to see it again in the next chapter. And so I love that these uneducated men are schooling the educated ones with philosophy, with truth, with theology. They're not so uneducated because the Holy Spirit is speaking through them. Now now here's the thing with this. They were asked to do something, not to do something that God told them to do. This is not a statement that said, I just don't like how you're ruling. This was a clear defiance of biblical teaching. And as you know, we've talked about this in the last two years. One of the things we considered as a church and as an elder board is we need to ask the question before we defy, is this asking us to do something that God tells us not to? Or is this asking us not to do something that God tells us to do? Those are clear cases of sin. That's where biblical defiance comes into play. Not preference. Not a lot of the other things that are are still just depressing, that are frustrating, but there are other methods. This is a clear defiance of a clear call to disobey God, to violate the Great Commission. And so they say no. They say no. And I actually think their boldness here adds to the credibility of the gospel. Because if they had said, okay, you're right, we're just we're going to be quiet. Maybe can we still do the upper room thing? Um, but we'll stop in the temple. I actually think that would have would have lost the power of the gospel, because it would have been cloaked in disobedient. It would have been disobedient. And so there's a lot more we could go to on that. But in this case, they were asked not to do something Jesus had said to do. It's very clear. Story that I was reading as I was studying was about Corey Tin Boom's father, Casper. And he was caught harboring Jews in his home. This is uh, at the time where um, 
Nazi Germany had risen and were persecuting Jews, taking them away and killing them, and they were hiding Jews in their home. When the police raided his home on February 28, 1944, they questioned him. Tell me, what does it say in your Bible about obeying the government? He replied, fear God and honor the queen. He was arrested because they had the testimony of a snitch who sold out the family for money. But the Gestapo chief had sympathy for the aged man and questioned, that old man, did, did he have you, did he have to be arrested? You, old man, he whispered to Tin Boom. I'd like to send you home, old fella. I'll take your word that you won't cause any more trouble. <laughs> Tin Boom replied, if I go home today, Tomorrow I will open my door again to any man who in need who knocks. The chief was so angered by his disobedience that he immediately threw him into prison. Tin Boom would not last one month in prison. He would die on a hospital floor at the age of 84 on March 10th, 1944. But he refused to give in and disobey what God had called him to do through Scripture. May we be so bold to refuse to let anything stop us from sharing the gospel. Anything. God has asked us to continue His work, to be His ambassadors, to carry on His work. I hope we look at Peter and John and say, wow, I can do that. I won't let anything stop me from sharing the gospel. It's that important. verse 21 and 22, we see the, op- the opposition was powerless because the people had seen God work and they were praising God. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, so, so they got their answer, they like, no, no, we really mean it, stop, or bad things. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Remember, we listen to the Holy Spirit, God does a work, people praise Him. And people are astonished. Well, people are coming to know the Lord. They're praising God. And the, the council had no, no recourse. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And, and that's in there, I think, to tell us how long he had been lame for, that this wasn't just an accidental thing. Oh, yeah, my, my leg hurt for a month and I'm good now. Everyone knew that he was lame from birth and that this was a miracle from God. So then we get to the response. Verses 23 through 31. And this is where the church faced opposition with boldness. The response of the church facing opposition with courage, with boldness. And boldness and courage always come through prayer and the Holy Spirit. Understand that spiritual boldness comes through prayer and the Holy Spirit. And those are the two things that we're going to see in this passage. Because they could have gone back. Peter and John could have gone back to the upper room and said what happened. And I would imagine that that others would be like, oh no, they're turning against us. Opposition is rising. Maybe we should cool it a little bit. But instead, the church jointly came together in prayer and in boldness, praying for boldness and for courage. And so the response facing opposition with boldness, two parts of that. The first one is prayer. Fervent joint prayer for boldness and courage. Notice this as we read this, not for the threat to be removed. Not for the opposition to stop. They prayed for boldness and courage to carry on no matter the opposition. That is a fascinating and important point. Verse 23. 
When they were released, they went in, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, they all heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and we're going to dive into that prayer in a moment. Their first response though was we need to pray. We need to pray. May that again be, be what typifies us as a church. Our first response is to pray. When anything happens, let's pray. Let's seek the Holy Spirit. Let's seek God's wisdom. And so the church prays for boldness. They pray that they continue preaching in the face of persecution. And they pray for the Holy Spirit to double down on boldness and to give them even more boldness. But, but let me just walk you through this prayer with just a, a number of bullet points I have because each, each phrase gives us the, the basis for that boldness. They start by saying, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they begin by reminding themselves of God's sovereignty. God made everything, so He's in control. Again, in the face of opposition, what do you need to remember? God is sovereign. He made everything. And so there's comfort there. They go on in verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And here he's quoting Psalm 2, but it's really interesting because they're reminding themselves that the enemy is powerless before God. The Gentiles are raging, or the nations are raging, Gentiles are raging, people plotting in vain, in emptiness, it does no good. So they've reminded themselves God is sovereign. They've reminded themselves that evil is powerless before God. And then in verse 26, they prayed reminding themselves that the opposition actually isn't against them, but against Jesus. It's against God. Verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, which is a word for the Messiah, for Jesus. And so the theology here is so rich, but so important for us for boldness. God is sovereign. He created everything. The enemy can't do anything to God because of that. His efforts are vain and pointless. Third, they're actually not attacking us. They're attacking Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's about Him. And then they prayed, they went on and prayed reminding themselves that God's plan, what God's plan is, and it will move forward. That it is moving forward and it will move forward and nothing can stop it. This goes back to his sovereignty. But in verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. By the way, just for fun, there's four people mentioned there. And in Psalm 2, 1 and 2, he lists four people or four groups. And so Peter here, or the church here, is identifying with Psalm 2. And and he's identifying the nations and the people that rage against God. He's identifying the the rulers here as Pontius Pilate and Herod. So he identifies all of them. So these people are gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so all these people are identified in the psalm, but what are they doing? Now, they're still culpable. They still have a responsibility for it. But what they're reminding themselves of is this is all part of God's plan. God is sovereign. The enemy can't touch him. He 
The opposition is against him, not us. Oh, and by the way, his plan is moving forward and nothing can stop it. These are wonderfully encouraging statements. And so then in verse 29, they get to the request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And so in light of God's mighty power, in light of his sovereignty, in light of his plan, help us boldly speak your word. Again, not bring them to justice, those jerks in the temple. Not defeat them, but help us be bold and continue preaching your word. They were keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing was proclaiming the gospel. And so they asked for help proclaiming the gospel. The political side of this, the, the ramification, all, all of what was happening, they were like, let, let God figure that out. God's sovereign anyway. Help us in light of that be bold and do what we're supposed to do. It wasn't to go in and try to depose the, the Sanhedrin. It was to go in and share the gospel. Man, it just can't get any clearer what a, what a, a church's response should be to opposition, to frustrations. Preach the gospel and do it boldly and do it more. That's the answer here. And so this is a powerful prayer for boldness and courage to keep preaching the word. Philip Brooks, an American pastor over 150 years ago, summed it up this way in a a wonderful way. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for power equal to your tasks. Amen? Don't pray for easy lives this, this Christmas. Don't pray for an easier 2022. Pray for more opportunities to share the gospel. The, the, the challenges might be the very tool, the, they might be the very thing, as with Peter and John, that the Holy Spirit uses to preach the gospel. Then we get to 31. That was their prayer. And then, verse 31, they continued God's work empowered by the Holy Spirit. They pray the Holy Spirit answers like that. We don't always get answers this vividly, but this is really cool. God answered, emboldening them with power, with the Holy Spirit. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness, the word of God with boldness. And catch this, they they finished praying amen and the place just shakes. It's not even Southern California. It just shakes and, and they know that God is answering prayer. And then the Holy Spirit, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to clarify something here. They all have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They all have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But when we see filling of the Holy Spirit throughout Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit coming on with a special ability for a task or for a certain time. There are times, every time I come up here to preach, my prayer is, Holy Spirit, give me your words. I'm asking for a a filling of the Holy Spirit that he will work during this time. And that's what he did here. The Holy Spirit came on them and he gave them what they were asking for. He gave them boldness. He gave them courage. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And I would underline continued and boldness. Because this is a story of opposition rising. And did it stop them? Nope. In fact, they continued and preached even more with more boldness. We started by saying maybe the church needs a good persecution. 
In this case, that persecution spread the church like wildfire because it forced people to rely on the Holy Spirit. It forced people to go back to prayer. It forced people to be more courageous for the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit came on them in a specific way. He was already indwelling, but He came on them with power in a specific way for this task. And we're going to see in next week's text, the result is the church just grew even more. It's just exploding. Satan tries to stop it. Church grows. Because he's powerless against our Lord and Savior, who we serve. I want to end by what's been convicting me all week. As I've studied this and studied it and studied this, and I already sort of mentioned this, but what stops us from boldly sharing the gospel? What stops us from boldly sharing the truth of the good news that is life-saving for people around us? What stops us with our neighbor? They They might think we're a little weird. If they're like my neighbors, they probably already think you're a little weird. Go with it. No, be bold. Be courageous. We haven't been warned not to preach the gospel. We haven't been told we're going to to prison or we're going to be beaten if we share the gospel. And so what what I get out of this is it just steps on my toes so much because if they, in, in the face of that kind of opposition, were willing to share the gospel, what on earth is stopping me? And nothing on earth should stop me because I have the, I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me and the power of the Holy Spirit. What do I really risk by telling someone about Jesus? What do I really risk? Oh, they might not want to be my friend anymore. Are you friends if you're not telling them about the best news you've ever had? No, let's have real relationships with people. Let's really love them. But let's really love God and share with them the gospel. Don't worry about rejection. Don't worry about social discomfort. Don't worry about embarrassment. None of that compares to what the early church was going through. Don't let anything stop us from sharing the gospel. The way we get that boldness is by prayer and continuing the work under the power of the Holy Spirit, stepping out in faith. And so let's end by praying for boldness this week. As a church, praying for those opportunities. Lord God, we come to you this morning. And Lord, I am convicted by the early church and an escalating tension that put their lives at risk, that put their comfort at risk, put their families at risk, and yet they still persisted in preaching the gospel. Lord, help us to do the same. Give us courage and boldness from your Spirit this week to tell our neighbors about you, to tell the the worker at the grocery store about you. Lord, to tell the, the barista at the coffee shop that we go to every other day about you. Lord, help us as a church to step out in faith, to be emboldened by the Holy Spirit, to where we can't keep our mouths shut about what you've done and who you are. Lord, and then use Village Bible Church to reach this community for Christ and the circles of all of our communities for you. Lord, use us as your tool 
but make us bold enough to be your tool. Lord, and then we are excited to see what you do. We are excited to see how you work through this church. Lord, because then that builds our faith. As we bring in people and disciple them, it builds all of our faith. Lord, I pray for living nativity, that that would be a chance for us to boldly say, this is the gospel. Help us to invite our neighbors. Help us to invite those that don't know you, that are in our circles, that they can hear the gospel. And Lord, I pray that opens up conversations that might be a little uncomfortable about who you are. Because it's worth it. Lord, may we be your ambassadors, your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.